Welcome to another episode of The Walking Classroom. I'm Laura Fenn, and today I'm at the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences in Raleigh, North Carolina, and I am joined by Dr. Stephanie Shuttler. She is a postdoctoral research associate looking at elephants. You are a mammologist. Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm a mammologist. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, Stephanie, can you tell me a little bit about what a mammologist is and what a mammologist does? Sure. Well, basically, a mammologist just studies mammals. And mammals are the animals that we describe. They have the characteristics. They all have a backbone, and they nurse their young. Most of them give live birth, and they tend to have hair or fur as well. Those are some of the characteristics that define mammals. But as a mammologist, I study a lot of different parts about mammals. I study their ecology, which is basically how they live in the environment, and I study their behavior. And I'm also really interested in their conservation. So how can we make sure that all different types of mammals are, are still exist and will be existing in the future? And what we need to do as people, as a mammal as well, but what we need to do to sort of help ensure that they have safe places to live and, you know, and grow and thrive. Right, exactly. And mammals, I mean, there are a lot of mammals that are people's favorite species. When we think about the really um, charismatic ones like tigers, lions, dolphins, elephants, those are all mammals. So they tend to be some of our favorite animals in the world, but also some that are really under threat. Well, fantastic. And speaking of elephants, I know that that is a particular area of interest for you. Can you tell me a little bit about your work with elephants and what you do and what you're hoping to do with the information you learn? Sure. I worked with elephants to get my PhD, and I worked on forest elephants, which is a type of elephant that most people actually don't know about. And they were recently discovered as a new species. In about 2010, it was confirmed they're a separate species. So where did this discovery take place? Basically in the lab with genetics. (laughs) (laughs) So um, there was some evidence by measuring their skulls that they were a different species, but the genetic information really confirmed it. So they're they're very different from the African savanna elephants, which is what we tend to think about when we think about African elephants. And where are forest elephants found? They're found more in central and western Africa, and the savanna elephants are found on the opposite side of the continent in southern and eastern Africa. Is that where most elephants live? Is Africa, or do they live anywhere else on any of the other continents? The other continent that elephants live in is Asia, so those are Asian elephants. So what, what did you learn about forest elephants? What did your research what direction did that go in? <laughs> I wanted to study their their socialization, their their social lives, like how how many friends do elephants have? So most of what we know comes from savanna elephants, and because they live in the savanna habitats, it tends to be more open, and you can see them. A lot of scientists have studied even single individuals for a lot of their lifetime. There are scientists that have studied a population for over 30 years of the same elephants. Elephants are also really long-lived. They can live to 60 to 70 years. I didn't know that. They have a similar lifespan to humans. So with savanna elephants, these scientists who have been studying these groups for a long time, they have these these family groups, and the family groups are really important for their survival. They use these groups to protect themselves from predators like lions and hyenas. And the females also, they cooperatively raise the young. So they, 
the other females in the group might take turns like babysitting the other the baby elephants in the group and basically just helping to take care of the elephants sort of a neighborhood Mm -hmm, exactly kind of like how we have our families the difference is though that the males don't participate in this so it's only females and their young or their, their calves that's what we call a baby elephant and what happens to the adult male so once the males start to reach like teenage years they will either leave the group or their mother will kind of kick them out and then the males people thought for a long time they're mostly solitary but actually the males do have sort of their own bachelor groups male male groups (laughs) and then eventually they look for a female to start their own group uh, they still look for a female um, basically to mate, but the females, they stay in their own female groups. These female groups are really important, and scientists have studied them, and actually babies that grow up in these groups um, have higher survival rates, and also the elephants have lower stress hormones as well. Some scientists have also done studies where they put speakers out into the field and played the roars of lions to these elephants, what they find is that the elephants that have this group structure, they're more able to respond to these roars effectively. This caring family unit that sort of helps each other out, it's good for their mental health, right? And, and you know, for example, right. like if they were to hear this lion roar, young elephants who grow up in this supportive environment, they're like, well, why why is that a bad thing? Why should I be right. afraid? Whereas these more isolated elephants, it's very interesting, the parallels to human activity. Right, exactly. Do scientists use what they learn about elephants and sort of translate that to human activity? I don't, I don't really think that as much um, because humans and elephants, they do live in different worlds. But I do think that they share most, most of their similarities and that they're really social. And I do think that... It's more of we're trying to plan better for elephants by taking in their social lives. So, like, for example, zoos, um, they don't house elephants alone anymore if they're an accredited zoo. So it's more like we're taking what we know about humans and and having that help elephants rather than the other way around. Wonderful. That is fantastic. What originally sparked your interest in elephants? So I actually came to science a little bit later in life. I'd always loved animals, and I was actually going to become an actress. So in school, I was studying theater, and I did biology kind of like as a backup major. (laughs) And I, my brother actually suggested that I study abroad, which means you can take classes in another country. And I was looking at different programs, and I came across this one program for studying wildlife in Kenya. And I thought I could I, I never have the chance to go to Africa again. I should do that. And when I did that, I just really fell in love with the elephants. I got to see them up close, the one park that we visited a lot. Um, they actually have elephants that are really tolerant of people. They know It's a really tourist-heavy park, so they know the tourists, they know the researchers, and they just, like, walk up right next to you. And just learning about their their family groups and their lives, I just became really fascinated by them. So it's just so interesting that that your career path changed. Mm -hmm. You imagined yourself doing one thing, but then you really tapped into this love of something else, and you have, have pursued this. What is your average day like? What do you do um, now as a mammologist? What is a typical day like? So right now I'm working on the e-mammal project, and that is a project that uses camera traps to study mammals. And this is occurring mostly throughout the mid-Atlantic region of the United States, and I work mostly in North Carolina here. And we work with volunteers who set up camera traps, and these camera traps are triggered by motion and heat. 
So whenever a mammal walks by, and mammals are also what we call warm-blooded, they can regulate their own temperature. So they trigger these cameras to take a picture, and then we can collect all these photos of the mammals that live in your community. So another example of a citizen science mm -hmm. project. Right, exactly. Fantastic. And then by collecting all of this data, um, what do you hope to do with that information? So we are, we're answering all sorts of questions about mammals. Um, a lot just wants to have, we have to learn about their distribution and where they are. And what I'm particularly interested in is how it changes as we get to more human areas, human-dominated areas. We actually are seeing mammals use human areas, and in some cases actually prefer people's backyards to woodlots that are close nearby. The big area of focus being mammalogy and elephants as your sort of specific study, but mm -hmm. then also translating some of your, your science information and, and data collection into just more backyard projects. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I love elephants, but I just love all animals. So, sure. <laughs> so, so I'm interested in projects that have to do with mammals in general. I didn't talk specifically about the forest elephant research. What I tried to figure out with the forest elephants is the reason why they haven't been studied that much is because they live in forests and it's really difficult to see them. Uh, because it's just more dense and you can't see far into the distance like you can see with savanna elephants. And scientists have studied them in these clearings in the forest, uh -huh. um, and some of them are natural. They're called bys, that's a pygmy word for them, and they have these mineral deposits in them, and the animals actually come and eat the soil to get these minerals. So they're maintained by the animals as they trample, they create this clearing. And what scientists found from looking at these elephants in these clearings is that the group sizes are really small. But you will sometimes get larger groups. And I wanted to see if the elephants actually did have larger groups, but they were just harder to see because maybe other individuals would be hidden in the forest sure. and the scientists couldn't see them. So that's what I tried to, to solve with my, with my research. And were you able to go on location for a lot of this, for any of the research? Yes. Yeah, so I worked in a country called Gabon. It's in Central Africa. And I worked at a national park at a field station in the national park there. Fantastic. So what were some of the data collection that you did when you were studying elephants other than looking at the clearings and things and, and pictures and observations? Did you do anything else? Yeah, so I actually collected dung from the elephants, so hmm. they're, they're poop. They're poop, okay. <laughs> yes, and the reason why I collected their dung is because... D-U-N-G? Yes. That's the that's nice an, word That's a nicer, more scientific word for poop. Got it. Is um, because it provides a really great source of DNA. And the DNA allowed me to be able to identify individuals just from their dung. So without ever seeing the elephant, you can identify the individual from the dung. And Everybody tell, has their own poop, right? right? Exactly. <laughs> and um, also answer questions about how individuals were related to one another. So in the savanna elephants, like I mentioned, the females are all together and they're all related to one another. So I wanted to see if the friends that the elephants had in these clearings were related to one another. And what'd you find out? For the most part, they were. And that was really surprising because I also looked at their their matrilines, which is their mother's ancestry as well. Okay. And there were a lot of different matrilines throughout the different areas. And can you determine that by looking at their dung as right. well, by yep. doing an analysis? And mm -hmm. so you can see the, the similar genetic makeup and you could sort of trace right. people's family line. Right, exactly. So even though these matrilines were found all throughout the park, when it came down to 
whose dung was found with who, who else's <laughs> dung. They tend to be related and also have the same natural line. And is that a common practice for scientists in the field to collect dung? Yes. <laughs> for elephants, for, for forest elephants, it's really great because, like I said, it's hard to see them. So a lot of the first studies on forest elephants actually came from their dung by people dissecting it, taking it apart. And um, you can tell what they eat by looking at their dung. They actually eat a lot of fruits. So people would take the different um, seeds of the different fruits, fruits that they found in the dung and identify all the different plants that the forest elephants were eating. And I'm sure once you get past the gross factor, <laughs> you know, and you just really just get into the science and yeah. it's just another way to collect data. And, right. you know, it's just one of those things that scientists do. And it's actually not that bad. Uh, a lot of people think that it's really smelly and it's, it's not too bad for, for elephants because they're herbivores. So it's a lot of vegetation. So it's not like, you know, old meat or something. <laughs> right, that they've exactly. Eaten. Right, right. So, you know, no big deal for those future scientists. Yes. And it's much better than if you if you wanted to get a DNA sample or a genetic sample from them, you would have to use blood, which means anesthetizing the animal, you'd have to take a dart and which would put them to sleep. Shoot the animal. Mm -hmm. So with me and inside this dart would be medicine right. that would put the animal exactly. to sleep. That would put them to sleep temporarily and you have to have a whole team of vets. It's um, a riskier operation because you're doing something medically and you'd have to draw blood from the elephant. So I'd much rather suffer and smell a little bit of dung and take dung that way than have to do that to well, the elephant. It's much less invasive, right? right. And, and it sounds like you're able to get just as much and maybe even more information in some instances. Mm -hmm. So what advice would you give to students who are interested in becoming a memologist? I would tell them just, just to really explore what's around them. I, I think that's a really great way to do it. That's how I became really interested in science. Like I said, I've always liked animals. Um, so I grew up, my parents took me to woods and, and not necessarily far away. We went to ponds near our house and we looked at different animals that lived in those ponds. We would catch frogs and we would always release them though. <laughs> and, and just like taking a look at what's around you. Um, also, I just think, I think reading as well. I always read books about animals when I was younger. That really helps as well. And advice that I always give is that you don't necessarily have to be the smartest student in terms of science. I, I never was. I always got good grades. But I think what makes a really good scientist is being able to work hard and, sure. and, and follow it because you love it. That's great. That is. And that's true for so many areas, right? I think that that's an yes, important thing yes. to keep in mind is that if you have passion and a willingness to work hard, you will mm -hmm. get there. Exactly. You will get there. This is the walking classroom. And so our, our wrap-up question with all of our scientists is, <laughs> what is your favorite place to walk? I think probably my favorite place to walk, although I don't get the chance to do this much, is um, at the beach. And one of the reasons why I like to walk on the beach is because you can always find little critters and animals, and especially with tide pools. That's really fun to walk around and look in the tide pools and see what lives in them. So that's probably my favorite place to walk. Fantastic. Well, good luck with you with your continued research, and thank you for all of your hard work, and thank you for sharing your time with us today. We're glad that you're here. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks.